Turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and 7, verses 55 through 60. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against, the, uh, against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the tops of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. So glad you're with us today. The passage that uh, should be behind me right now evoked a vehement and violent response from those who first heard it. And for those of us that are worshipers of Jesus, we can think of no more glorious picture than what Stephen saw as he finished his sermon and just before he was taken out and stoned to death for that very vision. How could men react so violently against something so glorious? It's interesting that Luke uses the exact same level of intensity and writing style to describe this death of the very first hero of Christianity, Stephen, that he uses to describe pretty much all that's transpired in these first six chapters. For you and I first coming to it, this is very emotional. It's epic to us. But to Luke, it's just another event in this powerful story of the birth of a movement that God began through a group of 120 followers in a remote part of the world to literally in two centuries conquer the known world. And so when he tells this story of the very first martyr, he treats it respectfully, but he doesn't give it the extra special treatment that we might expect when we think about a martyr. Why is that? Remember, Luke's writing somewhere between 60 AD and maybe a little after 70 AD, and what we know is that there have already been many deaths in the name of Jesus up until the time that Luke writes. So he doesn't see this as a unique event. He sees it as the beginning of a reality that he was living with then. 
In fact, the majority of the names that we see who are prime movers in the book of Acts all suffered a similar death. Simon Peter was crucified in Rome. Tradition tells us that he uh, felt himself unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord, so his request was to be crucified upside down. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. John, the beloved disciple, was boiled in oil. Andrew was crucified. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew, crucified. Matthew, stabbed to death. Thomas, speared. James, the lesser, stoned. Judas Thaddeus, not Judas Iscariot, stoned. Simon the Zealot, crucified. Matthias was burned at the stake. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Barnabas was stoned. Mark the Evangelist, trampled. James the Just, stoned. Luke the Evangelist, hanged. Timothy, beheaded. So you see, this was the path. It's not treated as unique because, in fact, it's the norm. Some statistics about martyrdom in the last 2,000 years. Almost 70 million people have been put to death because of their faith. See, most of us think that it was the martyrdom of the first centuries that is the most significant, but in fact, of those almost 70 million, 45 million have died in the last century alone. Currently, 160,000 people a year die because of their faith in Jesus Christ. If you take the facts just as they are and don't consider the relative safety of some countries like the United States versus the countries in much of the Islamic world, for instance, where if you convert to Christianity, it's literally a death penalty. If you flatten it all out, currently today, As a follower of Jesus, you have a one out of 120 chance of dying for your faith. Martyrdom is a given to Luke. We're so far removed from it. We've lived so long in a a nation that allows us to worship freely. We don't understand this. We've replaced the gospel that says, take up your cross and follow me, with a promise that this life will be a life of abundance, of health and wealth. That concept is nowhere found in the early church. It would shock, I think, Luke, pulpits today that promised that to followers of Jesus because what he would say Jesus promised was a cross. He's talking about what ought to be the norm for us and I wanna be careful to give it that justice today and how this concept of martyrdom worked its way into the primary metaphor of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Let's work through the story. We learned about Stephen last week because he was one of the seven Hellenistic Christian men commissioned to fulfill a very specific need in caring for the Hellenistic widows and orphans. We have two key people among those seven who now take center stage. This week, Stephen. Next week, Philip. Both Hellenistic Jews who had come to the Christian faith who thought more Greek than they thought Hebrew, more progressive in their thinking. So this is Stephen. He's described as being full of God's grace and power. I want to suggest that that should not be an exception. What ought to be true of every follower of Jesus Christ is that we are full of both grace and we demonstrate through our lives the power of God. 
And in this case, the apostolic blessing of miracles is transferred to Stephen as he now becomes a messenger of the gospel, fulfilling the apostolic ministry, bringing the gospel to a particular group of people in Jerusalem. They're referred to as the synagogue of freed men. Remember last week we spent time explaining the difference between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were those that had been born outside of the Holy Land. They spoke Greek. They thought Greek. They were Jewish in religion and in nationality. But culturally, they thought very different than the Hebraic Jews who sought to preserve not only the Hebrew worship but Hebrew tradition, Hebrew way of life. In the city of Jerusalem, synagogues had been created by the Hellenistic Jews so that when they came and wanted to worship in Greek and use the Septuagint in their worship, not the, not the Hebrew language, they could come together and do that. That's what the synagogue of freed men was. It was one of these Hellenistic Greek synagogues. Freed men were those that had been formerly slaves in various parts around the world under Rome and then had been freed and had returned now to Jerusalem and had uh, about a century before set up the synagogue. It's likely that Stephen was a member of the synagogue and now was aggressively arguing from scripture why everyone needed to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. But there's another interesting thing here. There are several cities that are mentioned. Uh, It talks about those from Cyrene, Alexandria, the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Cilicia, its capital was a city by the name of Tarsus. Does a certain character in the book of Acts come to mind who was from Tarsus? Saul, at least that's his name now. In a few chapters, we're gonna come to know him as Paul when he is profoundly converted. At this point, he is Saul of Tarsus. There's little doubt that he was there in that synagogue. He had studied under the great teacher Gamaliel. He maybe was one of those who who argued with Stephen in that synagogue and took offense to what Stephen was saying. And yet the text tells us that none of their arguments could stand up to what Stephen said. He was so persuasive, so accurate in his use of the scriptures and applying them to the person of Jesus Christ, that they couldn't stand up to his arguments. It's very possible that Saul was part of that group. Let's pick up the story at verse 10. They could not stand up against the wisdom of the spirit by whom he spoke. So then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against his holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, typically, you can't out-argue somebody. The next thing you try to do is out-shout them, right? And when that doesn't work, what's the next thing you do? You, you villainize your opponent. If you're not willing to be persuaded by their arguments, that's the only path available to you. You either walk away, but if you want to win, you're going to win not by reason. You're going to win by intimidation and by unfairly villainizing your opponent. We see that in political circles all the time. We see it happening in homes, and we see it here. 
They present this distorted version of what Stephen was saying. Now this is what's interesting. The witnesses were false, but the accusations were close. They weren't far from what Stephen said. And that's why when we come down to verse seven and the high priest asked him, are these charges true? Stephen couldn't just answer yes or no. He has to explain in detail. Because while a great respect for the temple and for the law, he was indeed proposing that they were now to be done away with because Jesus hadn't destroyed them, he had fulfilled them. And so rather than say yes or no, he presents a beautiful sermon. Now, we haven't read that sermon. Uh, Our time isn't gonna allow us to do it today. We're just gonna pick some pieces from it. Stephen is specifically targeting his accusations. This is how he does it. He begins by talking about three heroes of the Jewish faith. Talks about Abraham, talks about Joseph, and talks about Moses. He tells their story to say that in each of their cases, they hear the voice of God and are called out to a new thing. They are called to leave what they are comfortable with, called to leave that comfort zone into something that was new to them, but always part of the plan to God. He also says that in each of those cases, they experienced resistance. Abraham experienced resistance from his kin. Joseph, resistance from the patriarchs themselves, his brothers who would be the heads of the 12 tribes. Moses in particular, in each of these cases, even though at this point in their history, they have great regard and revere these three men. Stephen reminds them, when these three were doing their thing, the people of God gave them nothing but grief, unbelief, and rebellion. We're gonna pick up his sermon at verse 35. This is the same Moses whom they rejected with the words, who made you the ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And he led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. Now he's gonna begin to make a connection from these great men, in particular Moses, to Jesus. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. Now, When he brought the law on Mount Sinai, Moses also was promised that one would come who would be the true prophet of God, who would ultimately make the law irrelevant, who would fulfill the law. So Moses pointed to Jesus. Then he goes on and he talks about the temple itself. How uh, when they were in the, the wilderness, they had the tabernacle where God would come and dwell. And then eventually Solomon was used to build the temple. But then he goes on in verse 48 and he says this. However, the most high does not live in houses made by men as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things. That's from the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah says, look, the tabernacle was never 
meant to contain God. In fact, it would be wrong to ever call the tabernacle or the temple the house of God. More appropriately, it should have been referred to as the place of meeting. This temple was only a means to communion with God, where God chose to make his presence known so that you might have access to that through the blood of the sacrificed lamb. All of that was only a means to relationship. And what have we learned as we've gone through the book of Acts? What was Pentecost about? Through the coming of the Holy Spirit into the lives of every believer and the fire, miniature versions of the Shekinah glory, now no longer in that that Holy of Holies. In fact, the veil had been torn. God's saying, now my son, the true Lamb of God, whose blood is sufficient for the sins of the whole world has made it possible for me to now dwell in the hearts of men. You are the temple of God. The spirit of God dwells in you. That's what Pentecost was about. Yes, the temple had served its purpose. Therefore, the law has been fulfilled as well. Now, a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed through Jesus Christ, Paul would say in the book of Romans. So this is the argument, and that leads us to his application. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. That's the way to win friends, right there. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. He said, you're accusing me of destroying the law in the temple, but you have destroyed it by disobedience. And God no longer dwells here. You are circumcised physically, but in your heart you are not the people of God. You have lived in rebellion inside the institutions of Judaism, even though they represent the path to God. It was truth, and Stephen spoke it boldly. Now we come to this passage. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. That's that anger that's just ready to explode but hasn't exploded yet, right? I don't get ever that way myself, but I've seen it by other people. They gnashed their teeth at him. And this is where Stephen now, full of the Holy Spirit, looks up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, look, I see the heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it was at this that that anger exploded to the point where they cover their ears because in their mind, they're not gonna hear anymore. It threatens the underpinnings of their culture and their religious structure. And for the Sadducees, who were the high priests, it threatens their power and influence and personal prosperity. There is no reason why they're going to allow themselves to be convinced. And they grab him and they take him out and they stone him. What is it about this vision that sets them off so much? Stephen, standing here, a layman, not a priest, in their estimation, even though now we're all priests, we're a kingdom of priests, by their observations, he's an uneducated, worse yet, he's a Hellenistic Jew. Not only is he speaking with authority, 
and invoking the name of Jesus by virtue of saying, where I am standing right now, the heavens have been opened. He is saying that the temple is not the path to God any longer. We have direct access to God. We have it because of one man, the true righteous one that Moses promised would come, who has come. You have disregarded him. You have rebelled against him and you have put him to death. It is that one who has made possible the path, that one at whose death the veil of the temple was torn. Yes, let's be clear about it. Stephen was saying the temple and the law were done. And those whose whole life was built around the temple and the law. You see, when our message comes up against the status quo, the very structures of our society, whether they're religious, cultural, or political, when our belief in Christ threatens those very things, that is where the hearts of men rebel against the message. And that is true still for us today. And so what we see at the end is Stephen stoned. It's a good death. In his life, he glorifies Christ. In his death, he reflects and models Christ. There's this amazing image of Stephen at complete peace from beginning to end. Before he even preaches before the Sanhedrin, it says they looked at him, even though all these accusations had been laid on him, and he had the face of an angel. And in the end, it simply says he fell asleep. Sleep is a way that the Bible describes all death. But in this case, the language seems to indicate that even though the blows were violent, the death was peaceful. The heart was at peace. He had seen his Christ. He had seen the throne of God. Scripture says that Christ has ascended and now has been seated at the right hand of the Father. But in this moment, when Stephen sees him, Jesus is not seated at the right hand of the Father. He's standing. He's standing, not only as his advocate, but as his Lord and Master prepared to welcome him into eternal reward. Stephen died peacefully. More than that, Stephen died full of grace, even for those who were killing him. Father, do not hold this charge against him. He died modeling the death of our Savior. It's a powerful story. It's also meant to be something we see as the norm. And let's be honest, as American Christians, we don't. We don't see suffering for the name of Jesus as the norm. In fact, we assume that when hardship comes, God wants to deliver us from it. There's no such promise in Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself said, I came to bring a sword. That wasn't really a a statement of intent. It was a statement of outcome. Jesus was saying, because of who I am, I'm going to divide culture. I'm going to divide families. Not because I want to, but because the message of the gospel is for those who are perishing foolishness, but for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The gospel becomes a dividing line for culture. And so in some ways, we need to expect, just like when we have a cold front in the heavens that hits a warm front, there's thunder and lightning and tornadoes. We need to recognize the gospel 
as a dividing line, spiritual turmoil, storm occurs. And often there are deaths. So let's look at its implications for us. How the metaphor of martyrdom worked its way into the ideas of Christianity in the first century and throughout the scriptures. We look at this event, and if if we're very honest about ourselves, many of us say, could I do that? Could I do that? Some of us would boldly say yes. And I want to tell you that I'm not sure any of us know for sure. I know what I'd want to do. I'd like to be able to say I would stand strong in the face of it, but we are so far removed from the threat I think the honest truth is none of us know for sure the depth of our commitment to the gospel because in many ways, in many ways, it's theoretical. Now what I mean by that is that we have the right faith, but we have not been, most of us, in an environment where we've really had to decide is it so important that we're willing to die for it. Fact is, we don't know for sure. But the concept of martyrdom is bigger than death. See, whether or not you end up being one out of 120 who will pay the ultimate price and die, and and chances are that will not be anyone in this room, but whether or not you are called to pay the ultimate price, it doesn't matter. You're still a martyr. Do you remember in Acts chapter one, Jesus says this, let's say it together. You will be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world. I want you to focus on the word witness. Do you remember what I said the root word of the word witness is? The Greek is martus. It means martyr. Quite literally, it could read this way. Let's say this together. You will be my martyrs to the uttermost parts of the world. We are all living martyrs for the kingdom. You and I are to live our lives as though we have reckoned ourselves dead already. That's the mindset with which we're supposed to live our lives. And that's the secret to being able to face death fearlessly because we've already put ourselves to death. Let me just take you through a a couple of verses Luke 9, 23, let's say this together. If anyone wishes to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. That was Jesus' own words. He knew what was coming. He promised them the time would come when they would be kicked out of the temple, when people would put them to death and believe they were doing it in the name of God. They were doing the right thing. Jesus saw it coming. Paul's own words in Romans 12, 1. Let's say this together. In view of God's mercies, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You're a living sacrifice. You're the true walking dead, if I could say that. Living martyrs. Paul, towards the end of his life, In Philippians chapter one says this, let's say it together. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then the very next verse, verse 21. For me, to live is Christ. To die 
is gain. Here's the bottom line. If you want to follow Jesus, you're a martyr. And for most of us, we get to live our lives as martyrs, not die the death of a martyr. But either way, we live for Christ so that whether by life or by death, he is glorified. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, we want to be your true witnesses, your true martyrs. I, I, I wrestle even preaching this because I know that for us in this culture, it's so theoretical. We don't face death. We face mild mockery, temporary inconvenience, public disapproval. We don't understand the depth of the commitment, Father. And yet, I, I believe we sit here as your children and say, we want this. We want to lay our lives down fully for you. And so, Father, increase our faith. Increase our devotion to you. Help us to take the things that we hold on to and insist on maintaining control of and to offer them to you as part of our whole being, living sacrifices completely surrendered for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.